Every thousand years on the eve of the millennium, the dark angel comes and takes a body and then he walks the earth looking for a woman who will bear his child. It all has to happen in that unholy hour before midnight on New Year's Eve. So the Prince of Darkness wants to conquer the earth, but he has to wait until an hour before midnight of New Year's Eve. Is this Eastern time? Welcome to Now Playing Podcast Review of End of Days. Christine. Oh no. You know who I am. I've come for you. Hosted by Brock. Well, there's a lot about me you don't know. Stuart. Oh, I think you know who I am. You just don't want to believe it. And Arnie. It gets easier when you accept what you are. A fallen soul. But be warned, this episode will contain detailed plot spoilers and strong language. Satan's greatest trick was convincing man he didn't exist. We hope you enjoy the show. Come on, Jerry. This is the main event. It's gonna happen. Why shouldn't you have the best seats in the house? Today we're talking about End of Days, starring Arnold Schwarzenegger, Gabriel Byrne, Robin Tunney, Kevin Pollack, Rod Steiger, directed by Peter Hines. This is Brock, co-host of Now Playing. It's gonna fuck you, Brock. It's gonna fuck you so good. It's Stuart. Between your faith and my podcast, I take my podcast. This is Arnie. (laughs) (laughs) Arnie, I know how much work you used to love having because of Y2K. Every time I hear Y2K now, I think of Arnie because he has all these stories about he had to save all these people's computers from Doomsday from it turning over to 2000. So this is like Arnie's movie's made for Arnie because it's all about Y2K and the dangers of Y2K. You have no idea how much this movie is mine. I saw this in theaters with this buddy of mine because he and I were going to New York together, road tripping it from Chicago to New York City for Y2K. So not only was I making money hand over fist, Because I was replacing people's computers. And let's just follow that train just so people might have forgotten. When the clock turned over, the counter on your calendar, the computer was going to explode or something? You couldn't access any of your data? Your computer was going to think it was the year 1900 because people had only made it for two-digit years. Mmm, you'd have to get out your butter churn and apron (laughs) and that would just suck. And so it was going to start really screwing up a lot of stuff. It would overwrite files. It wouldn't know what's new. Accounting programs were going to break. And this is serious stuff. And everybody's like, oh, it was overwrought and really was nothing because nothing broke. No, people like me fixed it. That is what happened is people like me across the world went out and fixed this shit. And that's why nothing happened. Thank you for your service. However, I did make a shit ton of money doing it. <laughs> I wasn't doing it out of the goodness of my heart. Yeah, I think you were well compensated. Well, I took that money to my very first New York trip with this buddy of mine so we could do New Year's Eve. And there was a terrorist threat because it was the first time I'd ever heard the name Osama bin Laden was that he was planning a New Year's Eve 1999 attack. So yes, New Year's Eve 1999 and Y2K You're talking one of the peak points of my life, and it all came together with this movie, End of Days, and my friend and I were so excited about going to Y2K in New York, we went to this movie, even though both of us knew this movie was supposed to suck. Yeah, I saw it in theaters too, and I hadn't seen an Arnold movie in theaters since True Lies. I was over it, but I had started a new job. 
my coworker, you know, it was the holidays. There was not much business going around. We were like, let's sneak off to the movies. What do we see? And he just started giggling at the prospect of this one. <laughs> I was like, really? And then by the end of it, we were all laughing. We really had a good time getting paid to watch Arnold make a fool of himself in The Omen 6. I actually saw this for the first time about five years ago when I was going back and watching Arnold movies that I had missed. That's the first time I saw it. And unlike Eraser, like we talked about last week, this movie has stayed with me a little bit about what I remember, what I recall. So we'll get into it, but I did not have this theatrical experience in 1999. In fact, I do recall the posters on the subway and things like that, but I certainly did not want to go see a movie about the end of days in 1999, right before the turn of the millennium. Really? Were you afraid? No, I think I saw Toy Story 2 like three times that fall. Okay, so you just didn't want something serious. You wanted Toy Story. Something serious like End of Days. Right, exactly. (laughs) It wasn't my cup of tea. I'm like, I don't really need to see this in a theater. And again, at this point, Arnold was no longer the draw for me to go see a movie in the theater. And let's just point out, highlight the fact Arnold is in a very dark place, not only literally in this movie, but in his career. He is coming back from a lot. It should be said that he hadn't made a movie in two years, and that last movie was Batman and Robin. And we did review that. You can hear it in the archives as part of our Batman retrospective. And before that, Jingle All the Way. And he had very famously had heart problems and had to have open heart surgery. There had been some concern about him ever doing any action ever again. And his mother died. And he had an incredible gear of grief where he really didn't want to work. He had to come back and prove that A, he could compete with what was popular of the time. And B, he still had the muscle and the moxie to do action even though he's past 50 and had all of these well-publicized setbacks, he's still the guy we remember 10 years before in Terminator 2. As I recall, wasn't the heart attack right before Batman and Robin and everybody was laughing that he was in this big life support suit during that movie? It was around the same time, yes. And I remember reading articles like, can he still be an action hero now that he's had heart surgery? And I was like, Why couldn't he be? I mean, he plays a character, he still has a good physique, it's not like they're going to be chest-bearing and focusing on his scar every single shot. So, I remember kind of poo-pooing those pieces that seemed to declare his career over because he had to have heart surgery. Yeah, but it's not a good look, right? You're past 50... You had open-heart surgery, you made these embarrassing movies, you don't look really healthy anymore. You gotta bring it. And times have changed. Again, it's even more true than it was in Eraser. This is the era of usual suspects and Seven and dark, gritty 90s thrillers. The idea of one-liners and all of that, that was your dad's action movie. We've moved beyond, we've evolved from the Arnold cinema of the 80s. It's a real daunting challenge. I wouldn't know how to advise Arnold what his project should be. But I can say this. An apocalyptic omen-style thriller, he's never made anything like that before, and I doubt he'll ever try it again. I don't know why you bring up Usual Suspects. Why is Usual Suspects on your brain? (laughs) 
Because this movie is obvious. There's two cast members from it, and they literally steal a line from it. Yes, that's what I'm pointing out. I was being facetious. Oh, okay. Oh, okay. Your facetious knob was way down on that, just so you know. (laughs) Yeah. No, yeah, you got Kevin Pollock and Gabriel Byrne. And then, yes, when they say the greatest trick the devil ever pulled, I was like, oh my god, I can't believe you did that with those two in this movie. Gabriel Byrne was the reason I was at all thinking there might be a shot for this movie. It's because I knew Gabriel Byrne from Usual Suspects and things to do in Denver when you're dead. And just, I respected him as an actor. I didn't respect Arnold as an actor, but I thought, hey, maybe there's a shot. Yeah, but Arnie... Something interesting we talked about last time, who else we would cast in that movie, Eraser, who could have done a better job of it, and that movie was always going to be an Arnold vehicle. This one was not an Arnold vehicle. This one was a Tom Cruise vehicle. Tom Cruise was going to make End of Days? Yes, Tom Cruise is going to star in End of Days. No! <laughs> oh my god, nobody should choose this script. Let's just put it out there. This is not a project you ever do, whoever you are. This is, oh, no, Tom Cruise. Wow. This movie would be so much better with him in it. (laughs) No, it wouldn't. Yes, it would. It would be a much better movie with Tom Cruise in it. It would be a different movie. I mean, a lot of stuff would change. I wouldn't laugh as hard. Let me put it that way. Well, I think we're also hitting on something, Stuart, is that Arnold Cachet at this time also is why you have Robin Tunney in this movie instead of, say, like, our Charlize Theron, who had done The Devil's Advocate already who you would think would be someone else you would pick for the leading role here instead of Robin Tunney. And nothing against Miss Tunney, but she's not necessarily the first person you think of. Don't be talking no shit about the craft. Or Empire Records. (laughs) I'm just trying to say that the casting in this movie is one of the big reasons the product we have is what we have, is that the two lead actors in this movie weren't the first choices, and it's completely obvious to me why you're watching the movie that these two we're not the first choice. Yeah, but the problem isn't Arnold doesn't have enough good support. The problem is the movie and matching particularly with his image. And this director. I mean, it should be said Arnold wanted his lucky charm. He wanted James Cameron to direct this, which is like, haha, right. After he wins for Titanic, James Cameron is going to make this movie. No, he's not. But Cameron suggested Himes. I wonder why. I don't quite get it, but my guess is, the only thing I can think of is, Cameron probably respected the fact that this was a guy that dared to make a sequel to a sci-fi classic in the same way that he dared to make a sequel to Alien. Peter Himes is the guy responsible for 2010, the 2001 Space Odyssey sequel that is not as bad as you think it is, but not a classic either. Yeah, and don't forget he made Time Cop, which is not a classic, but not as bad as you think it is either. Mm-hmm. That's true, but I know him best from Running Scared, which is one of my favorite buddy comedies of the 80s. It's an underappreciated mm-hmm. movie that's come up many times on this podcast when I'm on here. But of course, he also made the dud for Hanover Street with Harrison Ford. So his resume is full of interesting movies, plus not movies that quite make the cut. Yeah, I think he was coming off The Relic, which is... Every bit as bad as you might have heard it is, yeah. The monster that eats hypothalamuses that pops out of the museum crate. The roller skating museum curator that fights it. Not good. Yeah, I remember watching it back in the day. But yeah, he's not exactly a name director who's going to pull you in. This is resting on Arnold's name. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, they gave him $25 million for this. 
they got a hundred million budget for this. Not surprisingly, it tanked in America. I think it only pulled in about 66 and kind of was saved by international. They got another 150. So by the end of the day, I don't think they lost money on end of days, but it was, I think, more than any other movie we've talked about in this retrospective, a real detriment to his image as a moneymaker. His action movie, Stardom, this is his biggest mistake. Arnie, how about the plot so we can get into End of Days? It's late December, 1999, and Arnold Schwarzenegger is Jericho, ex-NYPD cop. (laughs) (laughs) So good. When Jericho's wife and daughter were killed, Jericho lost his faith in God, became an alcoholic, and quit the police force to become a professional bodyguard. He's been hired to protect a New York City banker. Accompanying him on this mission is his partner Chicago, played by Kevin Pollack. An assassin tries to kill the banker, but when Jericho and Chicago catch the man, it turns out he's a priest. We come to learn the banker is just a body possessed by Satan. See, every thousand years, Satan has an opportunity to take over the earth. He must mate with a chosen woman in the last hour of a year that ends in 999. Or 666, depending on whether you're sleeping upside down or something. (laughs) So that woman will become pregnant with Satan's child. Then presumably in September of 2000, that baby will be born and Satan will rule or something. In about 30 years. So we still got a couple. I mean, it might be coming true. Who are we to say? The woman who was chosen as Satan's baby mama is Christine York, played by Robin Tunney. The assassin priest was a member of the Catholic Vatican Knights. The Knights are out to stop Satan, even if it means killing Christine to prevent her from getting pregnant with Satan's spawn. Jericho and Chicago investigate this killer priest. That leads them to Christine. Chicago is killed by Satan, and Jericho and Christine go on the run. Jericho takes Christine to a church where the priest fills the bodyguard in on the whole last hour till New Year's sex scheme, so Jericho just leaves the girl at the church. Satan tries to cajole, torture, and bribe Jericho to reveal Christine's location, but Jericho withholds. So Satan resurrects Chicago. Jericho confides in his partner where Christine is held, so Satan now is able to kidnap the girl for their horny ritual. Jericho, armed with a grenade launcher and all types of guns, storms into the satanic ceremony and prevents Christine from getting pregnant. This is where Chicago is revealed as a double agent for (laughs) Satan, but when Chicago refuses to kill Jericho, Satan sets the man on fire. Again, I think. I think that's the second time Chicago burns so far. (laughs) Yeah, second time. You can't kill Kevin Pollack. Jericho and Christine run through the New York subway chased by Satan. The more Jericho shoots the man, the more of his satanic form starts to be revealed. The two run into a church where Jericho turns to God and prays for strength. Then Satan, in his full monstrous form, explodes into the house of God. With only minutes left of the new year, Satan possesses Jericho and plans to use that body to get Christine pregnant. But Jericho's will is too strong. The man throws himself on the sword of a nearby statue, sacrificing himself to save Christine. What kind of church has those kind of impaling sharp objects around? (laughs) Midnight comes, Satan goes away, and Christine is safe as credits roll. Until a thousand years from now, when the whole thing starts all over again. Yeah, end of days two, coming to you December 2999. 
we'll all be safely burning in hell, but your <laughs> great, 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 great grandkids can not watch it. Somebody will AI now playing so we can review End of Days 2. <laughs> oh boy. No major list star should have gone anywhere near this script. This is amazing to me that this would have been seen as a hot property, but I guess it was written by a guy who had had a big hit with Air Force One. And so, you know, there's that law that if you have a big hit, you can shit in a bag for your next three scripts and they'll buy it and they'll make it. Well, wait a second, Stuart. To be fair, though, it's sort of topical in that it had to come out in 1999 because of the whole Y2K thing. And there are plenty of the idea of, like, the religious folks who believe the end of the world is coming. Also, that happened again with 2012. Yeah, you want to capitalize on the apocalypse. You definitely want to have a movie to talk about the end of humankind coming in 1999, but you don't want it to be this script. And we know that really early on, from, like, the beginning of this movie when they have the woman giving birth in 1979 and they're running the baby downstairs so that it can drink snake blood, and we're expected to believe that the wet nurse is somehow going to kill this woman and then, like, marry the husband and live in this expensive Manhattan brownstone for 30 years. It's hilarious. Wait a sec. I thought there was no father. I thought the father was dead. The nurse killed the mother and just raised the child. And got her house? How did she get the house? The mother dies, like, two years later or something. I didn't realize the nurse who ran the baby downstairs was the stepmother. Till later, we're getting ahead of ourselves, though, because the movie starts again with a 1990s opening credits. Let's show a lot of imagery against the screen, and so we can get this mysterious vibe to the whole thing. We have things burning again, things falling on the ground that are breaking, all sorts of religious imagery. It's very eraser. I mean, everybody wants to be seven for their opening credits, don't they? Yeah, that obviously was the movie that pioneered the idea that your credit sequence is a mini-movie, where you can have these kind of MTV, rapid edit, sort of subliminal ideas about what the movie is about. But again, all you gotta do is hear the score and see this opening and go, oh, they've remade The Omen really badly. You're thinking Omen? I'm thinking Rosemary's Baby. I mean, same thing. We cover that in the same franchise, actually, because they were part of that satanic panic 70s. Okay. Because also there's things in New York, just like Rosemary's Baby, like I think in Rosemary's Baby over and over again, more than The Omen in my mind. Well, not to rehash old series, Rosemary's Baby is a sophisticated comedy that's only sometimes a horror movie, whereas The Omen really did play into this apocalyptic imagery. And it really does expect the audience to believe that everything, you know, the year 1999 is really... The Devil's Number 666. The way that they play with all of that revelation stuff is, well, I guess depending on your religious leanings, either terribly frightening or incredibly campy and hilarious. Jericho Kane. You change that name, right? You talk about a racer. You do not let Arnold go out being called Jericho Kane. All the names in this are awful. Chicago, Jericho. Bobby Chicago and Jericho Kane. Yeah, it's... Really, really bad stuff here. I honestly thought at first his name was John. I'm like, he was John in Erasers. He just could have played John, but it wasn't John. It was Jericho. They couldn't call him Jerry, and his real name was Jericho? You don't call him Jericho. That is just, again, you don't have to ladle on the religious imagery as heavily as they do. But the idea that he's going to open here, that it's Arnold Schwarzenegger with a gun in his mouth, about to blow his brains out. I guess if he were pulling it off, 
it would be a stunner. You would say, wow, this man has gone to a new dark place that has changed his image. Or you could say, this man has no business, cannot pull this off. Every time he's asked to go to these dramatics and cry about music boxes and ballerinas and all of that, it's just whatever cool was left with Arnold is evaporating rapidly. I'm thinking when I see this opening scene of Lethal Weapon, Mm -hmm. and when we're introduced to Mel Gibson, is he's in a similar place. He lost his wife. He wants to die and be with his wife again. He's having these suicidal thoughts. He's playing with a gun. Is he going to blow his head off right there? Mel Gibson sold the emotion of that scene and took me through an emotional journey in the course of a couple of minutes in Lethal Weapon. Here, it's just pointing out how much of a non-actor Arnold is. Despite being a movie star, this man is not hired for his dramatic chops. This man cannot perform. This man has a look and is known for one-liners and carrying big guns. And this scene, right here in the beginning, tells me exactly, Brock, what you said. Same thing we said with Eraser. This is the wrong casting choice. And again, like I said about Eraser, this movie might even be recommendable if we didn't have Arnold in the lead. No, it could not be recommendable. This script is so bad. There's no single individual on Earth that could make this mystery, if that's what we're calling it, make any goddamn sense. Understand, they made changes to this for Arnold. Right. Obviously, if you had Denzel in the lead here, Denzel wouldn't have gotten the fucking grenade launcher out in Act 3, okay? Oh, admittedly, and that's why I love it. That's why I love End of Days, is because it does still have to be an Arnold movie. Arnold was on the operating table at last we heard, and now he's got to prove that he can get out there and still be Arnold. At the same time, at the other side of his mouth, he's got to show us a side of him that he's never done, and obviously he's not capable of giving. And you really have this disjointed, ridiculous... Okay, so he works for a rent-a-cop. Like, he's on the edge, he wants to kill himself, and yet they have, like, a SWAT team with choppers and Uzis and rocket launchers to pick up a Wall Street banker? So, they're not a rent-a-cop, they're like a private security firm. Right, that just can fly through Manhattan in super choppers and missiles. This is beyond bad. Okay, I get the point, Stuart. You don't like the movie. What I'm trying to say is that some of the things you're complaining about are not my problem with the movie. What I have a problem with is that you said a second ago a mystery. There's no mystery to this movie. Everyone in this movie constantly points out the easy solution to the problem. The easy solution to this movie's problem is you let Robin Tunney die. And that's it. There's no more threat. Devil's gone. The needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few. One person dies. No one else has to die. It's really simple math. So you're with the Vatican priest. The assassins that are blowing in here being like, we got to take her out. I'm not going to, you know, join them up tomorrow like in real life. I'm saying in this movie, like five different people call out, all these people are dying so she can live. When if she dies, there's not a spare person. There's not like one of three people. Okay, if she dies and we have a spare person over there, there's one woman. And it's not that hard to figure out what could happen. Yeah, but you got the Pope. You got to listen to the Pope, right? The Pope says, no, you can't do it. I understand. 
So it's really confusing to me. We have this scene like, all right, I'm not going to kill myself. I'm going to go get what I thought I heard him say is he's like a racer. I go and grab people from witness protection and get them a new identity, right? Did you hear that? No. No. I'm pretty sure they said it. Like they're got to go and grab some Wall Street investment banker guy and protect him. Right. But maybe so he can testify or something like that, but not witness protection. Right. Who is this guy? I don't know, but Satan has decided this is the dude. We've had the earlier scene. I don't think we even have a name for who Gabriel Byrne is playing. He's credited as the man. The man. Okay, perfect. It takes me a long time to realize that he's who Arnold is supposed to be picking up here in this climax. The guy that earlier was just dining in a restaurant with friends and got possessed in the bathroom. I love the scene. I mean, I absolutely love, first of all, that Satan is going to take a man's body in a New York bathroom. But second, when he walks out and just kisses that woman and bears her tit in the restaurant and the husband is just sitting there speechless and then he walks out and for some reason the restaurant then explodes. I mean, I didn't see Satan set no bombs. I don't know if Satan can just make things explode at will. He never will again in this film, but this is a hell of an introduction for our Satan. Yeah, why kill all these people in the restaurant? Why do this? Because it's an Arnold movie that has to have big explosions. And notice when the possession happens, it's this translucent creature that I think that is meant to evoke liquid metal. Where to really see this character as the new Robert Patrick T-1000? I saw the Predator with the invisible creature. Yeah, I don't think at all of the T-1000. I think the Predator more than that. I think of a ghost. I thought demons. I did not think T-1000 at all. Me either. Not once. When they're running around in the train and all of that, that is total like Terminator stuff. But okay. I think it's there. But it is not clear to me. I'm curious if you guys agree that Arnold was supposed to help this guy and now he's cursed by Satan. Yes. I don't even know. Was he supposed to help this guy before Satan came along? Or did Satan take over this guy's body and be like, I need some protection. New York's fucking dangerous, even though it's Giuliani, New York. I thought maybe he called for bodyguards after taking over this guy's body. I'm not really sure, because I don't think Satan would take over a body and then be like, well, let me look at his day planner. What must I do today? Oh, I have to go to this place. Satan's going to do what Satan's going to do. So that Satan needs a bodyguard is unusual. Otherwise known as bad. But he's got Thomas Aquinas shooting at him from the top of Wall Street. Did they really have to name him after, like, the theologian from philosophy class? You're right. These names are just painful. But this is where we get into the mystery, such as it is, is that Arnold has to figure out what's going on here. Why would a priest be trying to kill a banker? I can think of lots of reasons. But technically speaking, men of the cloth don't pick up rifles. And this guy, okay, it's the first action scene of this movie. It's the scene that's supposed to tell us Arnold still has it. Oof, blue screen a go-go. And another un-Arnold-like move going on here where he's doing some kind of weird backflip down the fire escape or something. It is, (laughs) again, making me think that this was not written with Arnold in mind. Arnold hanging from a helicopter. That I can get. Arnold 
doing some of this other stuff, not at all. I'd believe Kevin Pollock doing it more than Arnold. There should be no acrobatics in an Omen movie, right? We should not have choppers and Uzis. This marriage is a bad idea. I'm seeing more of a movie that's trying to be seven and trying to be the bone collector. Other movies like that, I'm not seeing a Terminator Rambo movie in this. It's the chopper that tells you that it is. It's all of that. You're right. They definitely want you to be thinking about David Fincher imagery and all of that. But then they have to have this running off the roof, chasing an old geezer into the subway stuff. Yeah, there's a lot of big action sequences for sure. And it goes on and on and on. Throughout the movie, they have one action set piece after another. They shouldn't touch it, is my point. They should never have a stunt coordinator on this set. You don't do that in this kind of movie. But at no time does Arnold Schwarzenegger's character really come across as a Terminator, as like he did last week in Eraser with two giant guns blazing, coming to save the day. Arnold really comes across like his character as put upon and more like a, I don't want to say John McClane because John McClane seems more competent. But he seems much more of a, he has guns, but he's not really like, he's scared. He's running around. He's always scared in this movie. I don't see Arnold being scared in any other movie. So the whole time, if he does have guns and stuff, that's fine. But what I see is, for the first time ever, Arnold Schwarzenegger showing us that he can't beat this guy. And Arnold realizing it on screen. And I'm not opposed to firearms in a Satan movie. I don't think that that is just a law that should never be broken. I think it's overdone in this film. I agree. For sure. But I think that you can have action set pieces in a Satan film where you're going to have Satan with a very specific plot and a ticking clock. So I'm perfectly fine with this opening scene where the priest is trying to kill Satan and Jericho and Chicago have to go after this priest. It's not adrenalizing. It's not well-done action. That's the biggest flaw it has. That is the flaw's execution, not concept. Maybe the biggest flaw is, for some reason, okay, they capture the priest, they put him in an oxygen tent, Satan comes to visit him, and staples him to the ceiling and scrawls Christ in New York on his body, and Arnold's going to walk in and go, oh, we're looking for Christine York. Wow. If this movie had action that made leaps like that, it'd be a great action movie. Because that is a leap in logic I cannot follow. He didn't do it instantaneously, but he did do it pretty quickly. I agree with you. That was kind of a laugh out loud moment that he figured out that puzzle very quickly. And why? Why would you write that? Why did he write Christ in New York on this guy's body? No, it was Christine York. And I thought the guy wrote it on his own body as a note. Well, although he was crucified, so I don't know how he could cut himself. Yeah. And on his back. Yeah, there's no way he could actually reach around and do that stuff. But, you know, but again, the imagery here when he comes in when he's on the ceiling is very much like Seven to me. Very hard not to see Seven here. And Kevin Pollock's humor in this, he has some good lines, but he says it so flatly and so squarely without any hint of a tongue in his cheek. But he's saying funny lines that it was kind of fun to listen to him in his dialogue and his sarcasm. I really was enjoying how he knew his lines were incongruous to the movie he was in, but he was still saying them in the best way he possibly could for the movie. I have seen a lot of stand-up comics, and Kevin Pollock is honestly 
in the top three I've ever seen in my life. This is a very amusing individual. And yeah, he knows what movie he's in here. What I kept thinking of is also Dennis Miller in The Net, where you just have a comedian who knows he's in a piece of shit movie, and he's going to deliver the lines the way he's going to deliver the lines. He's just going to not contribute to the reality of the movie at all. And that's Pollock in this film, and he's my favorite part of this film. He's trying to get by through this without minimal damage to himself and his reputation. You barely would notice that it's him. I think the most significant factor for why it is him is because they are cribbing as much as they can from usual suspects. They are trying to bring in whatever cachet they can about it. And so he was a last-minute casting decision. They were going with somebody else or had someone else lined up. He came in with a week's preparation and you can see him shrugging and being like, yeah, you know, this is not my fault. <laughs> <laughs> Jericho. Okay, so yes, if I saw Thomas Aquinas trying to shoot a Wall Street banker with no tongue and then winding up pinned to his hospital room with Christ in New York or Christine York written on his body, I would definitely want answers. I don't know why you go to Rod Steiger and I don't know why Rod Steiger is doing exorcisms in the basement as a hobby or something but half this scene is him going down and there's an old lady in a bed but there's also like a computer farm down there with a whole bunch mm -hmm. of priests on old apple II computers or whatever that kind of blew my mind so this is like this scene in james bond when they go open a door and there's a bunch of people doing all karate moves but here instead it's exorcisms plus factual research it was really strange to have this basement full of people. And it's just hilarious. Like, the woman's just going, ah, ah, ah. And Arnold's like, what is she saying? I'm like, she's screaming, Arnold. <laughs> it's a very funny. This movie makes me lose my shit. Almost every scene in this is fucking hysterical. Meanwhile, all this is happening. Satan, what's he doing? He's like crashing. The doctor that delivered Devil Baby for reasons, maybe it's not even real. He crashes their dinner. And then has a three-way with his wife and daughter that ends up morphing into Christine. I think it's real. It is hysterical. I mean, I love that Satan is just so horny that he can just seduce anyone at any time. And Udo Kier is fine. Go ahead. Fuck my wife and my daughter at the same time. And what's funny to me is I'm like, okay, so he's fucking mother and daughter. I guess that's a lot of people's fantasy. And then the mother and daughter kiss, and I'm like, oh, wait, that's a step too far. That is the line for Arnie, <laughs> is right there when the mother and daughter French kiss, is when I start going, wait a second, this is inappropriate. <laughs> <laughs> and you're saying that this wasn't a dream because their bodies also combined. Yes, they morph into one thing. I think Satan just can do that. He can make women's bodies melt. So Satan can do that, Satan can make things spontaneously combust, but Satan can't be a GPS and find Christine York? Mm-mm, he's got no help on this, and he's got buffoons working for him. He had people that have been with Christine since the minute she's born, <laughs> and they can't deliver this woman to an abandoned movie theater. Yeah, half this movie is about getting Christine York into uh, dingy IMAX. And poor Christine York. I gotta say, my favorite character, you think it's Kevin Pollack, but my favorite character, I have no idea why the albino is here. I don't know if he's working for Satan or whether he's just crashing and having a good time. But these <laughs> moments where he's popping up on the train and snapping into pieces 
I just love it. So this character kind of symbolizes a lot of my problems with this movie. He has a very interesting look, and he has that great, incredible smile. And he does something bizarre that makes your mind go, what the hell is going on here? And then there's very little payoff or explanation on why that happened. You see, that's what I was going to ask is, is this character even real? Because we are told that Christine has had visions and has mental issues. And so does this character exist or are we seeing a personification of her mental issues? Obviously, the mental issues are the fact that she keeps having dreams that she's going to have to fuck Satan. But we don't see those dreams. We only hear that she's had that dream for her whole life. But with the ones we do see, the visions we do see, had nothing to do with that. Well, she claims she didn't pop a pill, right? Like, she bites into an apple and it's got living people writhing inside of it. And she's like, oh, time for my Xanax. Again, a great image. But what does it lead to? Why are we seeing it? And what's the payoff? This entire movie has a huge problem with that. It's a lot of imagery. And not a lot of substance. I would add stupid imagery. I feel like all of these, like the the guy snapping and breaking into pieces on the subway train is not scary. It's the opposite of scary. It's funny. Okay, if you want to shatter in front of me, that's fine. Someone get a broom. But eventually the Vatican priests do show up. They're going against the Pope. And they decide they're going to kill Christine. And we get another action scene where Arnold just happens to be walking up. You got to love the fact that Arnold's big fight here is with an uh, overweight nanny. He has to, like, put her through the glass table and all this. This is just not a good action movie. Can we agree this is not a good look for an action star? This is the moment, Stuart, where if you want to quote the Terminator, this is it. She's a Terminator in this moment when she has super strength to fight Arnold Schwarzenegger. It's silly. It's dumb. It's crazy. It's hilarious. It's really funny to watch, yeah. And this is where Kevin Pollock bursts in the flames the first time, right? Yeah, because Satan decides to take a piss and his... Piss is gasoline. I love that thought that wherever he pisses is just suddenly you can ignite. My other part of this movie I had a problem with because soon after this, they run down the New York City alley and they come across CCH pounder Marge, who's also in on it. So just like a John Wick movie, everybody seems to be in on the Satan thing. It's really kind of insane that there's nobody in New York who is not part of this <laughs> incredible ninja assassin thing like in John Wick. It's crazy how many people are Satanists in New York. But CCH Pounder is a tremendous actress who brings gravitas to everything she does and actually helps ground this movie somewhat. When she's on screen, I believe the reality much more than any other time that this movie's playing. I concur. I think she's great in practically everything she does, and here she does bring some weight to it. Kevin Pollack does the best he can the ground stuff, too. But she really is a presence when she's on the screen. So this is where the movie starts to get into theological concerns, and I kid you not. Arnold is really going to go there. Like, he's had these fights with Rod Steiger, Father Kovacs. They have this whole scene about Kovacs is spouting garbage about the beast number is not 666, but it's 999. Like 1999, this is the year of Satan, and Arnold's like, I like my Glock. I'm so head-hurting, because, yes, let's spell this out for people who didn't watch it. 666 is the number of the beast, except it came to somebody in a dream. They got it wrong, because in dreams, numbers are backwards and upside down, so really the number of the beast is 999. But apparently, 
any 999 year will do. It didn't just have to be in the 10th century. It could be in the 20th century. But then Jericho says something that is completely right. He's like, oh, he has to impregnate this woman an hour before midnight. Is that the Eastern time zone? And the priests start saying, shut up. Time zones have nothing to do with it. But for the entire rest of the movie, it is indeed the Eastern Time Zone. (laughs) Yes. We're shouting on the fact that this plot is so stupid. But yes, that is actually the truth. The devil cares about Eastern Time only. And his greatest trick is convincing man he doesn't exist. It's kind of like that thing about don't feed a gremlin after midnight. But if he screwed up in New York at midnight, could he jump a plane, fly to L.A. and fuck her there? Again, these leaps of logic are so great if only the action could match them. It's amazing the horseshit this script is asking us to swallow. Not only that, in the action scenes, they also ask us to swallow a whole bunch of horseshit. Like, you cannot safely duck underneath a subway train. It's physically impossible. No, 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 no. I looked the shit up. Somebody did it and survived. Somebody fell on the fucking tracks and somebody jumped down with him knocked him down, hovered over him the way Arnold does to Christine in this movie, keeping his body above, and they both survived uninjured. And several people have done it under real trains, not subway trains, but often you'll lose a limb. Right. I could actually believe that on a train track, a real train out on a train track out in the open, but in a subway, I can't believe that. Check the New York Times, because there is an article about how to survive if you're knocked down on the tracks, and one of the final options is avoid that third rail, but lay as flat as you can on those tracks with your head to your side, and the train can go over you and you will live. Well, I will stand corrected, but I'm still calling BS. Okay, you can be corrected with your BS. (laughs) So, Arnie, you're telling me that we're gaining valuable knowledge about survival in End of Days, and this is working for you. I don't know about you, I'm always scared of getting pushed onto the train tracks down there. I never stand close to the edge. Second nature for me at this point. Alright, so Satan has tried a different route. Jericho hides Christine in Kovacs' church, and I don't know, at one point I hear that Satan can't look and go into those churches, and then other times he's going in and killing everyone. He can go in, but he can't see. Oh, that's helpful. I mean, he could go church to church. But he can't GPS where Christine is if she's in a church. Oh, wait a minute. Wait, he can GPS where she is if she's not in the church? Yes. I thought he couldn't find her anywhere. He knew where she was, but again, the housewoman couldn't get her past Arnold, is what we're led to believe. Maybe. I don't know. I thought the housewoman, Miriam Margulies, I thought she called Satan and said she's here. Something like that. They all know that's where she's centered because the whole time she's been keeping track of where she is or who she is and what she's doing. But I thought because she was all over the city, not just in churches, that Satan couldn't find or locate her. The one power he doesn't have is finding an individual. He can resurrect anybody all day, but he can't locate a person without seeing them, which makes zero sense. Let's just put it this way. It's an incredibly unsatisfying chase that's happening i guess that's the word we're using where he's trying to find the one woman he needs to bang and there's no real good reason why she's the one right or why gabriel Byrne is the one that needs to be inhabited and in fact we'll find out he isn't going to be the person to impregnate her so 
all of this, again, this script could never be saved. It is damned to hell. I would tell you that if you have the power to float into a person's body and possess them, and we learn later that he can just hop from body to body, perhaps he could do that instead of sitting in Gabriel Burns' body and going after her like Pepe Le Pew. Keep walking very slowly until you find her. It doesn't make much sense that he's staying in that one particular body. But let's talk about the big scene, the big dramatic scene, where Jericho basically, I mean, it's such a corny thing. We all know that he's not going to be tempted. Why would anyone be tempted by Satan? Here was a housewoman that had raised Christine since birth. What does Satan do? He walks in and kills her. You know if you do anything for Satan, he's going to betray you. But here he's got this real bad con about, hey, I'll bring your wife and daughter back to life if you just tell me where Christine is. And we're going to get some very unsubtle stigmata going on here, because when Arnold doesn't say it, he gets knocked out a window, and his hand gets impaled on glass, and if you haven't known yet that Jericho is going to be your Christ figure in this movie, here it's unmissable. Well, later they actually string him up crucified. I'm going to go against both of you on this one. This scene with Satan tempting him with his wife and daughter coming back alive, I found this is the best scene in the whole movie. Wow. It worked for you. Yeah, I really liked Gabriel Byrne in this scene a lot. I did not mind at all what Arnold Schwarzenegger was doing in it. This is the right play for the devil to make against this character of Jericho because he has information that he wants. So from a writing standpoint, from a point in the movie standpoint, and from an acting standpoint, all of this works. This is the one scene in the movie that everything else we're watching actually makes the most sense and plays very well. Gabriel Byrne is good in this movie. I honestly like his performance as Satan, and this is one of the high points because it's one of the few times he really talks. He grabs tits, he gives looks, <laughs> he takes pisses, but he doesn't have a whole lot of dialogue in this movie. Kill skateboarders, don't forget that. <laughs> oh yes, he kills skateboarders. Even though they ha he has a Satan Rules t-shirt on, he's good, but you can't tell me this scene is well acted when Arnold is in it trying to give these scenes of pain. Byrne is good, the actress who plays the wife for a few seconds is good, fine for a few seconds, but Arnold can't sell pathos. Arnold can't sell pain. Arnold can't sell alcoholism. I think another actor could really make this scene zing. And because Arnold's in it, that's why my focus is him falling out a window. I understand. It played for me. Everything you're saying about Arnold in this role is true. In this particular scene, I liked what he was doing enough, and I liked what Gabriel Byrne was doing a lot for the scene to play for me. And then it turns into the rest of the movie after that. So it's kind of like a little bit of an oasis for me in the rest of this movie. It does feel like an added scene. You know, you always want that scene. I always go back to Heat. You want the diner scene. You want the scene where Pacino and De Niro sit down in the middle of the movie and have their tete-a-tete -tete before the conflict at the end. So that's what this scene is. This is a chance. Christine is hidden away in a church. It gives us a chance to put Jericho and Satan face-to-face -face and have their little battle of the wills here, even though it's not really progressing the plot at all. The way the plot progresses is then, even though Jericho knew he was dead, Chicago's gonna show back up, and it's the same thing as Eraser. When Arnold told James Kahn where Vanessa Williams was, and I'm watching the movie going, 
don't trust this son of a bitch when Jericho tells Chicago where Christine is. I'm like, don't trust this son of a bitch. Same mistake in two movies in a row. Yeah, he should know that this is his friend back from the dead, that Satan just flew out his window and is no longer down there. It should be a really obvious ruse. But for whatever reason, yeah, meet me in an hour at the church and yeah, everyone ends up dead. Kevin Pollack sweeps Christine away and yeah, Arnold gets crucified. It's just, oh, it's way over the top. But I did listen to the commentary and Peter Himes was very proud that he staged a scene where Arnold lost. Again, he speaks of this movie as if he's proud of it. And he thought that he was making something very subversive by offering the unstoppable Arnold as vulnerable and frail in this moment. I'm sure Arnold liked being sold as frail post-surgery, as we've discussed. (laughs) (laughs) Which is why he immediately comes down from the cross and is like going back to his security detail and getting Uzis and everything and using some kind of tech where you can type in their license plate and find out where the car is in the city. That'd be nice to have. So at this point in the movie, though, I'm calling BS left and right. So not only do I call BS that they drive underneath the subway train, there's nobody on a subway train an hour before New Year's on New Year's Eve. Right. They were fairly empty, but there were some people on them. I saw nobody else in that train. No, I'm saying in real life. I'm not saying in this movie. I lived in New York and I've traveled on subways at all hours of the night. And on New Year's Eve to boot, I can tell you that there's always somebody on a subway train, pretty much even one or two, not necessarily that empty, A, and B, they certainly aren't all in churches, because when they go to the church at the end of the movie, there's like 100 people in that church for some crazy reason. On New Year's Eve of 1999 into 2000, that many people are in church? No, I don't think so. But maybe I'm wrong about that too. I actually think that would be the highest number of people in church, because a lot of people did believe it's the end of the world, so go pray. A hundred people? In a city of millions? Yeah, I'll go with that. You know what? That's fine. Yeah, they've had these interstitial moments when days pass where we listen to radio DJs talk about all of this, you know, rivers are turning to blood elsewhere, but we're not seeing any of it. Not seeing any of it. And I disliked the exposition through radio and television people (laughs) very, very much. Did not enjoy that whatsoever. I'm having trouble believing all of these little things that they're setting up because I'm not enjoying what's going on. I'm not captivated by the story. And when I'm starting worrying about how many people are or are not in churches and subway trains, you know the movie's not getting you. Here's my thing is that, Stuart, you complained earlier about the gunfire in a Satan horror film, but I'm okay with what we've had so far. But the moment he goes and gets the grenade launchers from the security company and we get the Rambo arm-up scene, that should never be in a horror film. From that moment on, the entire rescue of Christine feels like it's from a different movie and should not be happening the way it's happening. Terminator 2. I mean, they literally go into, like, the factory and all of that again. I feel like this is definitely a replay of his greatest moments, but whatever. It's a bad movie, and I agree. At this point, you know those bullets are not Satan-piercing. You know you (laughs) cannot win in this way. And the fact that they're going to try to give you an Arnold climax and then, God bless them, have Arnold teary-eyed throw down the gun and pray to God. Wow. The director was proud. Again, you could see it as subversive, 
but I see it as shaming. I see it as a real tarnishing of an action hero's legacy. Well, those bullets do hurt Gabriel Byrne. I mean, we saw him, he was healed with scar tissue earlier, but even Satan can't take a grenade. We see Gabriel Byrne's body is torn apart, limb from limb, burned around. And so Satan is loosed in his original form, and he doesn't look all that much different from the Golden Child Satan. Yeah, and he goes into Arnold's body and possesses him for another hysterical... This feels like an Arnold comedy. All those faces when he's being thrown around the church and... It's kind of when he was, like, freaking out breathing Mars air in Total Recall. Yeah, I thought that, too. Yeah. <laughs> hysterical. I'm just cracking up. Yeah, and I also thought the Golden Child, too, when this big giant beast comes out of the blue and the CGI thing looked like they had a guy to suit a little bit, too. Like, it does a big old... We're fighting a human the whole time, but all of a sudden now we have a giant beast thing. But Arnold dies at the end of this movie. He has died before, right? He's died in Terminators and things like that. Not really in this way, yeah. I mean, I guess in Terminator 2 he sacrificed himself, but he was a robot, so... Right. It feels different that he's supposed to be this broken human being. And also about to rape a woman. It should be said, I mean, he's about to run for office and have a lot of women me tooing him. I definitely would not want to have on tape the climax of this film is I'm going to tear Christine's clothes off. He does not get very close to that. Nowhere close to it. No, it's implied that that's what Satan wants to do. But Christine is just there. You're stronger than him. And next thing you know, Arnold's throwing himself on something sharp. It took me a while to figure out exactly what it was, but something sharp nearby. <laughs> this entire climax scene from the subway to the church, from the running around, Christine has been very... Maybe she's not a screamer. Like, she seems to be taking a lot of this in stride. Both times she's almost raped, I might add. She seems to be just laying there, instead of, like, flailing her arms or her legs or spitting or trying to do anything to help her situation. I'm not saying she's playing the victim. What I'm saying is, I don't understand the choices that the director or the character or the actress, whoever made these choices for this particular character made, this entire time, either when she's running or when she's on the ground, or when she's in a horror position like she is in here, she doesn't seem like she's reacting in a way that would seem realistic at any level. Blame it on the benzos. I mean, she's medicated. I had a real problem with that in the fact that I felt like she was a prop for much of the movie. She was the MacGuffin, but that took away her agency. And looking at the movie through a prism of 2022, it did seem very misogynistic a portrayal, a reductive characterization at the very least, that this character exists for nothing other than Satan's broodmare. And there is the moment, though, and it's not much, but I'll give the film its moment, where they're on the subway train, and finally, Christina's like, can I do something? <laughs> and she literally says that line. She's like, I want to do something instead of just running. And so, Arnold gives her a gun and shows her how to shoot a gun. She then proceeds to not shoot a gun for the rest of the movie. But there was at least that scene. Yeah, she shoots it once and hits the guy. It's like, like that? Yeah, like that. And then she never shoots the gun again. I agree. It would have been nice to have her take charge of her own destiny at some level at some point, And or have her actually freak out a little bit that she almost got run over by a train. 
if this were James Cameron making it, you can be damn sure that she would have more of a Linda Hamilton role in all of this. But this is Arnold trying to prove he still got it. She disappears from the last moments of this movie. I feel like, yes, it's mostly for Arnold to do his theatrics in the church and her to lay there and watch it. They did shoot another ending. I just put it out there. They don't even put it as a bonus feature on the disc. They did shoot it. The director confirms it in the commentary. They're never going to show it, but Arnold did blow Satan away. They originally planned that he shot the giant monster and it fell over dead. And they felt like that would make audiences laugh. So they consulted a priest and it was the priest that suggested that Arnold sacrifice his life and be reunited with his wife and child. Did the director discuss the other ending that was written and, as I understand it, filmed? was a continued ending because the producers were afraid audiences wouldn't like an Arnold movie where Arnold dies. And so the film continued past the scene where God takes Jericho off the sword and heals his wounds. And Jericho actually survives this movie thanks to the glory of the Almighty. Oh, no. Oh, wow. No, I didn't know about that one. You can see why they would do that. That's obvious that they'd be nervous about killing Arnold. But again, if you're making Seven, what do people love about Seven? The fact that Gwyneth Paltrow's head is in a box. You have to be dark. You have to be bold. You have to do the unimaginable. That's the problem here, is that this movie isn't bold enough. It can't be. Not with its aspirations as restoring Arnold as an action hero of old. If it wants to be new... It has to leave all that behind. I've heard your premise throughout this entire conversation, Stuart, and there are certainly moments where that might be true, but I did not get that from this movie. And I just want to be very clear that the movie I saw here was Arnold's attempt to not just do action, but to show people I can do more and be in these kinds of thrillers and things like that. I thought he was pretty much trying to say to people, I don't want to do those anymore. I can still do them. I'll show you some spots of that. But I want to show you everything else I can do also. And you're going to love this new Arnold who can do dramatic acting. I did not see this movie as his meal ticket back into action hero stardom. And I'm sure my view is colored by the fact that I watched a lot copious bonus materials in which he talked about how he read all the fan letters after his surgery and wanted this movie to prove that he could still be their action hero. I did not do that research, Stuart. So I'm going on what I saw in the movie. If that all is true and your premise is true, this is what Arnold wanted for this movie, that's great. No, it's not. Okay, so what I'm seeing on the movie right now is that it was Arnold trying to show us that in his next chapter, much like a Clint Eastwood say, that he could do a movie that he's not always with guns. A lot of the movie, he's doing other things. And he's not Clint Eastwood. We can all agree. You didn't feel a predominance of this movie was about him picking up guns and doing action? There was a lot of imagery. And there was a lot of religious stuff going on and a lot of devil stuff and a lot of scenes that have images in it that did not cohesively come together. There are a lot of action beats in it. I do remember him having guns, yes, and I do remember action scenes, but I do not feel they're in the same kind of action movie like we watched last week with Eraser. Not at all. That's a different kind of movie. So that's where I'm coming from with that. I don't think so. I don't think this is him coming back like Stallone did with Rambo 4, going balls to the wall action to prove that I still has as an action star. That's that movie. I don't see that here. So, I disagree. And I can't decide if the best part of the movie or the worst part of the movie is right at the end of the movie. 
Well, it's another joke. Yes. <laughs> Poor Arnold trying to cling on to things that served him so well in Terminator 2. Guns and Roses. Yeah, this isn't You Could Be Mine. This is Guns and Roses after everybody quit or was fired. I'll never forget <laughs> Slash quitting the band and his press release just basically said, I gotta play! Exclamation point. Like, he was so tired of all the waiting and all the production around it, all of Axel's perfectionism. This is when Buckethead was part of Guns N' Roses and all of that. Is that a Cenobite? Who the hell is Buckethead? <laughs> Buckethead sounds like a video game character. What are you talking about? <laughs> the guy who wears the KFC bucket on his head and plays guitar. He's actually called Buckethead. I remember vaguely. I'm just, I'm making light of the fact that, yes, Guns N' Roses the group that people love existed for a very short period of time. Maybe, what, six years of actual work that people respect. And then, yes, that Chinese democracy, 20-year slog to try and follow it all up. Axel worked with so many different people, and as rock music changed, he tried to change his sound. That's what's so interesting about that album. This was like when he clearly wanted to be the frontman of Korn. Oh my God, is like, I'm going to try to do new metal. Yeah, to put it in context, Guns N' Roses' last original album had been Use Your Illusion 1 and 2, which was 91. Mm -hmm. And then in 93, 94, they came out with an album of covers called The Spaghetti Incident. And that was it, but they kept saying, or Axel kept saying, they're working on an album called Chinese Democracy. And the suspense was thick for what will Chinese democracy be after the epic Use Your Illusion double album. When they have new music again, what will it be? And years passed. Six years passed. Only Arnie is salivating at this point. Yeah. But yeah, some people were excited to hear it at some point. I was. And so to hear that on the end of day soundtrack is the first new Guns N' Roses track in six years. I raced out to buy that soundtrack for that Guns N' Roses track. I remember buying it at Best Buy, getting to my car, ripping open that shrink wrap, putting it in to hear Axel wail. Oh my God, I can't deny it. I've been talked into murdering babies. <laughs> that doesn't even rhyme. That doesn't even rhyme. Does it rhyme? Is not melodic. Is not really... What, did he write it for this movie? Did he, like, know that there was this Rosemary's Baby plot that he had to, like, speak to? It's difficult to know, but Axel and Arnold were in similar bad straits at this time. And it's just funny they come together here at the end of the millennium for what is truly a terrible song. And it wasn't even included when they finally released Chinese Democracy, was it? It wasn't on that album. No. Yeah, there was so much. Again, the bits and pieces of Chinese democracy floated around the internet. By 2005, you could actually find, piece together the album, or at least thoughts about the album, long before Dr. Pepper forced their hands and made them <laughs> release it. Such a strange thing. We'll have to get into that some other time. But yes, this was a throwaway song that deserves the garbage bin. Yeah, I couldn't believe it got the full focus of the end credits, though. You can hear the whole thing in the end credits. Wait, did you say Dr. Pepper? Yeah, the CEO of Dr. <laughs> Pepper actually said that he would buy everyone in either the country or maybe the world one of his sodas if Guns N' Roses 
would release the damn album that year. And so they did. (laughs) And I got a free Dr. Pepper out of it. I got a coupon in the mail. That was the best thing to come out of that album. (laughs) I kind of like IRS. I will just say that. Of all the songs on that album, IRS is a good one. All right. So, Stuart, Arnie, do you recommend End of Days? Stuart. You know, it always takes your breath away when a performer that's aging, that's been in the spotlight and recognizes father time is moving on, they make that miscalculation. They have to jump on something that's trendy. They're trying to do something that doesn't come natural to them. I'm thinking of Hammer's gangster rap phase. I'm thinking of Axl Rose in this movie. It can be really funny when someone that has no business going in a direction tries it anyway. And End of Days is just replete with an out-of-step Schwarzenegger truly trying to prove... I think, as you say, Brock, he wants to show that he compete with the kids. He can be the lead in a David Fincher movie and at the same time do what he's loved for and famous for. And Arnold should know that his fans would never accept him in this role. An alcoholic rent-a-cop who cries over ballerina music boxes with the guns in their mouth and then flies in on choppers to stop priests. I mean, this stuff, it is hysterical. I laugh many times in this movie. I do feel like, yeah, it is one of my favorites of his, only because the match of apocalyptic, omenish horror movie and his style of action movie is just so obviously wrongheaded. It should never have been attempted. It's like trying to get Christine York from Christ in New York. It just doesn't make any goddamn sense. And it is truly Arnold's big mistake. And for that reason, it's a big-ass brown arrow. I bow down and pray to this one. It's great. It is high comedy. I love it. Arnie. I was surprised this movie wasn't end of careers when I looked up to see what people had done after this, because it does feel like a complete debacle. Now, it didn't bomb. It ended up making its money back at a little bit profit overseas, kind of like Eraser, but... I have to say that I'm really surprised at how poor the concept is for this movie. I mean, again, you mentioned Tom Cruise, and then you put Arnold in there. Those two are not the same. Those two are not even close to the same. I mean, I realize nobody does what Tom Cruise does in regards to real stunts and things, but there are people who could bring a Tom Cruise level of energy. A Matt Damon. Somebody like that could bring some gravitas to this role that Arnold could not. I don't find this movie as funny as Stuart does. There are certain moments where I'm laughing, but mostly it's just stupid shit like what time zone does it matter? And that's not going to be a, oh my god, this movie's so bad you need to see it because I'm laughing about time zone questions. And it's just a bit of a confusing mess. And the sad thing is, though, I mean... I'm the one of us who likes The Devil's Advocate. I like Satan movies. I really like the concept of a ultimate evil coming to Earth and how can a human stop a god. I love this concept. And The Devil's Advocate is a comparative to this one, admittedly not nearly as action-based, but it makes me think that with the right star, there is an end-of-days movie I could have enjoyed. Sadly, they decided to put Arnold in it, and it's not good. It's a not recommend, a very solid not recommend. 
I fell asleep twice watching this movie for this recording. I have seen this movie before, and I recalled my letterboxed notes I wrote on that years ago that I had a tough time getting it through then, but I don't think I fell asleep then. I fell asleep now. There are things I like in this movie. Some of the choices are okay. The director's imagery is okay. But, you know, there's cliche after cliche, bad writing, bad casting. We've talked about all of that. I didn't see the same movie Stuart saw. I don't find this movie funny at all. I find it a big old waste of time. There is a movie here that can be made about the devil coming to Earth to do what he has to do here before the turn of millennium, because that makes sense as a plot of a concept of a movie. But not like this. I agree with Arnie in that aspect. Yeah, I like Rosemary's Baby. Yeah, but there are so many choices in this movie I did not like that when I'm laughing at the movie, I'm not really laughing like I would at a movie that's so bad it's good, like a Brown Hour movie. I'm laughing at the movie because it's just, oh my goodness gracious, really? Come on. It's really like I feel bad for this, but the fact that it keeps on going and going and going, yeah, this is a very disappointing movie. There was something there. A lot of things on paper make sense, but then when they started making this movie, it doesn't make sense at all. I also think they had, in addition to the wrong star and the wrong female lead, I think they had the wrong director for this as well. So even if Tom Cruise was to do this, it wouldn't be Peter Himes. It would be somebody else helming this movie. It would be a completely different movie, obviously, for a variety of reasons. But I think this movie is one of those movies that you could theoretically... Take it out of 1999, put it into modern day, and try again. Perhaps they can tell the same exact story, the same exact kind of thing, but do it in a better crafted script. Have the woman be more than just a MacGuffin, and have the broken man trying to find purpose in saving her be a stronger character. It just really is just a hard movie to want to ever watch again and think about again because of all these missed opportunities and just bad choices after the concept. The concept's great. Then one bad decision after another, and we have end of days. Yep, it was terrible. But is it better than the monsters? You'll have to join us on Friday to find out. (laughs) Yes, that is our October patron-exclusive show. If you are a patron at patreon.com or on Podbean for $10 a month, we are... Coming up on 80 exclusive shows that you can only get by being a patron. So that means if you sign up for $10, you not only get the Adams Family shows we've put out, but 80 shows are just sitting there waiting for you for $10. So hopefully you can head to patreon.com or Podbean, sign up, hear these shows, and I want to give a shout out to some of our most tremendous supporters, Rob Clark. Jonathan Abden, Joshua Straw, Tommy Woodward, Jeff Wade, and Darth Akari. Thank you all. We got other names. Harder to pronounce names. Are these Latin? <laughs> like going to conjure the devil? Sid Zizuja, Fisher Zuzza 12. I think that's Fisher JA 12. Yeah, it's Fisher JA 12. <laughs> oh, okay. That's far less satanic. Jeremy Mills, JRB Horticulture. Reagan Alarm R. Jr. Regional Armorger. Hmm. I don't know. Christine York. <laughs> Jobby Wan. Andrew Dezuk 067. David Kraft 1000. And also Grand Canyon 
Dixie Dano to Knee, Kiefer 51, Cox, and Rudax. Thank you all for being patrons and be like them and enjoy these shows and 80 others that are now playing Patreon. And next week, the three of us will rejoin together to discuss Arnold's first movie of the 21st century, one I remember having real existential problems with, The Sixth Day. Existential problems? Hmm, I'm intrigued. I can't wait to hear about that. We'll be back. What about the end of days? Think of it as a new beginning, a change of management, and you'll be right there with me on the ground floor. It will be so cool. Thank you for listening to this now-playing podcast movie review. We hope you've enjoyed the show. I can do this all day long. Come back to NowPlayingPodcast.com each week for another new movie review podcast. Not to be taken with alcohol. Want more reviews like this one? In the archives section of NowPlayingPodcast.com, you'll find more than 1,000 in-depth movie reviews from our panel of hosts including The Fast and the Furious, Mission Impossible, Star Trek, Terminator, Predator, and many more at nowplayingpodcast.com. Maybe now you're ready to believe. Support from listeners like you keeps Now Playing Podcast on the air. You can donate directly at nowplayingpodcast.com. You should have taken my offer. At least you would have been happy once in your life. And you can join our crowdfunding campaign for early access to new episodes, exclusive reviews, and bonus reviews. You can't resist, can you? Because you don't want to. Now Playing Podcast is produced by Arnie Carvalho. There are forces here at work you couldn't possibly comprehend. Associate produced by Jason Latham. Well, I'm afraid it takes a person of pure heart to defeat pure evil. Now Playing is edited by Santiago and Arnie. Well, it's official. I'm never sleeping again. The opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the individual hosts and may not reflect the views of Venganza Media Incorporated. Something good happens, it's his will. Something bad happens, he moves in mysterious ways. Venganza Media Incorporated is not affiliated with and this podcast has not been prepared, approved, or licensed by any entity that created the film analyzed herein. All movie clips and music included in this podcast are the intellectual property of their respective copyright holders. They are included here for the purpose of review and no infringement is intended. I think you need to be reminded of how painful reality is. Now Playing Podcast is an exclusive trademark of and may not be used without the express written permission of Vinganza Media Incorporated. Take it easy. We are the good guys. Now Playing is a Vinganza Media production, copyright 2022. And no part of this show may be reproduced, repurposed, or redistributed without the written permission of Vinganza Media Incorporated. All rights reserved. When a thousand years are ended, Satan shall be loosed out of his prison. Twenty-seven. Kiefer, 51. <laughs> Is it Cox or Knox? <laughs> I say Cox. It's Cox J. <laughs> That's Cox, man. He wants me to say Cox. That's great. <laughs> it could be Coke. You know, like the Coke brothers are spelled it that way. Coke's brothers, K-O-C-H. 
Is it? Yeah. Cox, it is. (laughs) 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 All right, give me a second. I'll get it out. I'll get the Cox out. Give me a second. That's funny. Uh, Cox J. And the guy, do you know who's playing the Pope here? The guy who's playing the Pope is the guy in Breaking Bad who has the bell in the wheelchair. Oh, that's him? That's him, right? And here's an, he's in a wheelchair in the second half of the movie as the Pope. I'm like, wouldn't it be so cool if he's ringing the bell? That'd be so great! But it, it, they didn't go there. Well, that's because Breaking Bad wouldn't come out for 20 more years. For 20 more years, of course. But it's kind of fun to notice that thing and see the correlation. I mean, all pee is probably flammable, right? I don't think so. I mean, it's liquid. I don't think so at all. Yeah. It's 96% water. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, I haven't tried. and I'm not encouraging any jackass experiments also it is not actually sterile so don't drink it yeah wasn't planning on it 